Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 186 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 10, Commander Thomas P. Stafford. Here's Walter Cronkite. The Apollo program will cost the United States $24 billion. Some argue that this is too much to spend for a nation which faces what they call higher priorities, an unpopular war abroad, a danger of increasing unrest at home. Some scientists say the Apollo program is of little scientific value. Others call it a form of showboating. Some cynics say we are simply carrying out the romantic dream of a martyred president, John Kennedy, who pledged an American man on the moon by 1970. These are all points to be argued. But the moon has held a certain steady fascination for man through the centuries. And in an earthbound way, you could say a man searched for the moon 500 years ago. He was curious to see what was on the other side of the ocean. A nation depleted by war and interior strife. Its treasury so low that its ruler pledged her personal income to the venture, invested as much as $75,000 in a man curious to find a passage to India. He failed. His name was Christopher Columbus, and what he found, according to some historians, was America, which turned out to be a discovery of some importance. The trouble with great futures is that mortal man cannot foresee them. Apollo 10 was the first Apollo mission whose crew members were all veterans of spaceflight. Thomas P. Stafford had flown on Gemini 6 and 9. John W. Young had flown on Gemini 3 and Gemini 10. Eugene Cernan had flown with Stafford on Gemini 9. Shortly before his Apollo 10 flight, Tom Stafford made these comments about the experience of his crew. Right, well, it's, uh, I think it's the most experienced crew they've ever put together. But, uh, John Young's had two flights, I've had two flights, and Gene has had one. Uh, there was a total of 11 uh, rendezvous on the Gemini program. I flew four of the rendezvous, and John flew two. So between the two of us, you have 60% of the rendezvous. And uh, as far as command module simulator time, nobody in the world can touch John Young for total time. Now let's meet the commander of Apollo 10. Thomas P. Stafford was the first member of his Naval Academy class of 1952 to pin on the first, second, and third stars of a general officer. He flew six rendezvous in space 
logged 507 hours and 43 minutes in spaceflight, and wore the Air Force Command Pilot Astronaut Wings. He has flown over 127 different types of aircraft and helicopters, and four different types of spacecraft. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We will start at the beginning. To properly understand General Stafford's makeup, you would have to go back to his ancestors. And that brings us to Tom Stafford's mother, who came to Oklahoma in a covered wagon. His mother was a teacher, grew up on the prairie of western Oklahoma. General Stafford's father was a dentist, came from the east, established his practice in western Oklahoma. You combine both mother and father and the talent, the intelligence, and the courage, the pioneer spirit, that all came out in their son. He was a average type kid, ornery, but brilliant. Every afternoon as a little boy, four or five years old, I'd watch what I thought was a giant silver bird flying over, and that was a DC-3, and I'd look at it and look at it, and I said, I want to do that. Thomas Stafford was born September 17, 1930, in Weatherford, Oklahoma. His first marriage was to the former Faye L. Shoemaker, and they had two daughters, Dion K. and Karen Elaine, as well as two grandsons, Thomas P. Stafford II and Andrew Alexi Harrison. Stafford's second marriage was to the former Linda Ann Dishman of Chelsea, Oklahoma. Linda had two children from a previous marriage, Casey and Mark, and four grandchildren, Sloan, Lee, Marcus, and Tara. Tom and Linda adopted two sons, Michael Thomas and Stanislav Patton. Thomas Stafford is a well-educated man. He graduated from Weatherford High School in 1948, and he received a Bachelor of Science degree with honors from the United States Naval Academy in 1952. In addition, Stafford received several honorary degrees. These include a Doctorate of Laws from Oklahoma State University, a Doctorate of Humane Letters from the University of Oklahoma, a Doctorate of Science from Oklahoma City University, a Doctorate of Laws from Western State University, a Doctorate of Communications from Emerson College, a Doctorate of Aeronautical Engineering from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, a Doctorate of Humanities from Oklahoma Christian College, and a Master's of Humane Letters from Southwestern University. Stafford had a long and impressive career. After he graduated from the Naval Academy, he was commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. He received his pilot wings at Connolly Air Force Base, Waco, Texas, in September 1953. He completed advanced interceptor training and was assigned to the 54th Flight Interceptor Squadron, Ellsworth Air Force Base, Rapid City, South Dakota. In December 1955, he was assigned to the 496th Fighter Interceptor Squadron, Hahn Air Force Base, Germany. 
where he performed the duties of pilot, flight leader, and flight test maintenance officer, flying F-86Ds. He attended the U.S. Air Force Experimental Test Pilot School and received the A.B. Hunts Award as an outstanding graduate. He was an instructor in flight test training and specialized academic subjects establishing basic textbooks and directing the writing of flight test manuals for the use by the staff and students. He is a co-author of the Pilot's Handbook for Performance Flight Testing and the Aerodynamics Handbook for Performance Flight Testing. Here's Thomas Stafford explaining what happened next in his career. When President Kennedy gave his speech about the goal of going to the moon, that was only three weeks after Al Shepard had flown about 200 miles downrange and Yuri Gagarin had been in orbit. I said, that's what I want to do. Now that is a challenge. That is how to go higher. That is how to go faster. After several years as an instructor at the test pilot school, I needed to go to a new assignment. So I applied and got one of the three Air Force slots at the Harvard University Graduate School of Business Administration. Also, I was in the finals for the second group of astronauts. So I started Harvard Business School. I was there for three days, and the neighbor came over and said, there's a call from you from Big Slate. So I got a call and he says, you're still interested in coming on the program, quitting Harvard? And I said, absolutely. And that would happen to be my birthday. So it was a great birthday present. Stafford was selected among the second group of astronauts in September 1962 in order to participate in projects Gemini and Apollo. Here's John Glenn commenting on Stafford's selection. Tom obviously was a standout in the group because he had more of a technical background and his mind was full of figures and formulas and <laughs> that just almost became his trademark, I think. He, he really was an expert on, on everything he touched. In December 1965, Stafford piloted Gemini 6, the first rendezvous in space, and he helped develop techniques to prove the basic theory and practicality of space rendezvous. Here's Wally Sherall, Jim Lovell, Stafford himself, and Chris Kraft commenting on Tom Stafford's Gemini mission. Tom, to me, was the, was the mathematical slide rule that I needed. And he did all the, the, the mathematical work, and of course I did all the close-up flying work. And we worked this out very carefully, and we became a very tightly bonded team. It was going to be the first docking uh, within a Gina spacecraft. So there was a lot of pressure on Sharon how to get that rendezvous done. If it proved out very difficult, then it could have a major, major impact on the program. We first saw them looking down and they were coming straight up. It was nighttime uh, when, the, when the rendezvous started to come up, but we could see their jets firing to get into the final phase to slow down. Then we went on and we did the, uh, the first rendezvous, and uh, then we flew around, sometimes within a couple of feet of them. So what happens if the computer fails? What happens if the platform fails? What happens if the radar fails? So we'd worked out a series of nomographs and charts of what would happen. And we had our own calculations how we could get in there. Tom was very impressive to us because he was able to, through these carpet plots, to come up with the ideas of how he could, on board with a slide rule, figure out the maneuvers 
And as we told him what the maneuvers we computed from the ground were with our new computer programs on the ground, he would say, hey, you're right. Tom Stafford on Gemini 6 made his reputation. He became known as an engineering astronaut and a thinking astronaut because he understood the orbital mechanics very clearly. And that was, I think, where he got the reputation he has today of being an outstanding astronaut, an outstanding manager, and an outstanding thinker. So I think the Gemini program sort of made Tom Stafford. In June 1966, Stafford commanded Gemini 9 and performed a demonstration of an early rendezvous that will be used in the Apollo lunar missions, an optical rendezvous, and a lunar orbit abort rendezvous. Here's Gene Cernan and Tom Stafford recalling Gemini 9. We got up in orbit and we made our first rendezvous very successfully, just uh, as prescribed, so we could at least fill one square. And of course, there was the uh, there was a shroud on top of the angry alligator. We couldn't dock. It was tumbling. We had two delays. We lost an Agena. We had a shroud that stuck on. We had no computer updates. Who knew what to expect at that point in time? And yet, <laughs> maybe the worst was yet to come. Then came the big step. We were going to do the first spacewalk completely around the world. Now, before that, there had only been one walk in space by Americans, and that was Ed White for a short 22 minutes. And Cernan was to fly this Air Force experiment, the astronaut maneuvering unit was going to be in the back of the spacecraft. It would be on a 125-foot tether. He would fly around. I opened the hatch, and I stood up in the hatch. Tom held my feet down. And, of course, when you pressurize that spacesuit, it's like a big Thanksgiving Day balloon going down Broadway. You just pop up like this. And I needed to get back in the back of the spacecraft outside and work my way back on handrails before nighttime came. He was twerking the spacecraft all over, huffing and puffing. I could tell he was working hard. He got in the back, and he started to deploy the AMU, get the arms down, but then he fogged over completely. I overpowered my environmental control system. So it was a very precarious situation. We had the hatch, it was open. My partner was hanging on to the back end of the spacecraft, doing 17,400 miles an hour, and he couldn't see, and we lost one way of two-way comp. I made the decision, we're calling it quits, and we'll start working our way back into the spacecraft immediately. From August 1966 to October 1968, Stafford headed the Mission Planning, Analysis, and Software Development responsibilities for the astronaut group on Project Apollo. Stafford was the lead member of the group which helped formulate the sequence of missions leading to the first lunar landing. As astronaut project manager, he demonstrated and implemented the theory of a pilot manually flying the Saturn V booster into orbit and the translunar injection maneuver. And, of course, in May 1969, Stafford commanded the Apollo 10 mission, the first flight of the lunar module to the moon. He descended to nine miles above the moon, performing the entire lunar landing mission except the actual landing. He performed the first rendezvous around the moon and designated the first lunar landing site. He also made reconnaissance and tracking on future Apollo landing sites. Stafford was sighted 
in the Guinness Book of World Records for the highest speed ever attained by man. That occurred during Apollo 10's re-entry when the spacecraft attained 24,791 statute miles per hour. Here's Neil Armstrong commenting on Stafford's work on the Apollo 10 mission. Tom and Gene were able to pretty much duplicate what we were going to try to do on 11. In trying to help us as much as they could, they tried to make their flight plan as much like ours as they could. And that was a great benefit to us. They would use the same orbital trajectories. They would use the same positioning over the lunar surface. They would fly down the approach path over our landing site. And most importantly, to measure the unusual bumps in the lunar gravity. So it gave us uh, a lot of increased confidence that we just might have a chance of pulling it off. And here's Tom Stafford commenting on what might have happened on Apollo 10. When I flew the first lunar module there, unfortunately it was too heavy to land or I'd been the first one to walk on the moon and certainly would have been the second one. In June of 1969, Stafford was assigned as head of the astronaut group, responsible for the selection of flight crews for projects Apollo and Skylab. He reviewed and monitored flight crew training status reports and was responsible for coordination, scheduling, and control of all activities involving NASA astronauts. In June 1971, Stafford was assigned as Deputy Director of Flight Crew Operations at the NASA Manned Space Flight Center. He was responsible for assisting the Director in planning and implementation of programs for the astronaut group, the aircraft operations, flight crew integration, flight crew procedures, and crew simulation and training divisions. In July of 1975, Stafford logged his fourth space flight as Apollo commander of the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project, a joint space flight culminating in the historic first meeting in space between American astronauts and Soviet cosmonauts, which effectively ended the international space race. Here's Stafford and Leonov commenting on Apollo Soyuz. All right, what a show. What are you look for? Here was my dear friend, Alexei Leonov. I saw face of Tom Stafford. Tom Stafford smiled with everything was okay. And we both put our hands together, and it was the famous handshake in space, not only of two people working together, but it was a symbol of our two countries working together. Due to that historic mission, Stafford developed a long-lasting friendship with Alexei Leonov. So Alexei is uh, just like a brother to me, and my wife Linda and I have... Uh, Spent uh, time at his dacha, you know, in the countryside there in Russia, in his home. And he's been to all three of our homes. And Linda and I have two new Russian boys, sons we adopted. And I never knew, as here we were at the, at the height of the Cold War, I was on one side, Alexei on the other, that this relationship 30 years later would give us two new sons. In August of 1975, Stafford was promoted to Major General. In November, he assumed 
command of the Air Force Flight Test Center. In March of 1978, Stafford was again promoted, this time to Lieutenant General, and on May 1, 1978, he assumed the duties as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Research, Development, and Acquisition for the U.S. Air Force located in Washington, D.C. During this time, General Stafford personally initiated the F-117A stealth fighter, and in early 1979, he wrote the initial desired specifications on and started the Advanced Technology Bomber Development, now designated the B-2 Stealth Bomber. He also initiated the AGM-129 Stealth Cruise Missile. In November of 1979, General Stafford retired from the Air Force, but he wasn't finished yet. In June of 1990, Vice President Quayle and NASA Administrator Admiral Richard Truly asked General Stafford to chair a team to independently advise NASA how to carry out President Bush's vision of returning to the moon, this time to stay, and then go on to explore Mars. General Stafford assembled teams of 40 full-time and 150 part-time members from the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, and NASA, and completed the study called America at the Threshold, a roadmap for the next 30 years of the U.S. manned spaceflight program. General Stafford and Vice President Quayle held a joint press conference at the White House in June 1991 to announce the recommendations to the public. The Clinton administration directed a review of all federally funded research and development plans of the executive branch in 1994, and General Stafford chaired the committee to review and make recommendations to enhance the efficiency of the research and development initiatives of the NASA Human Exploration Enterprise. During Stafford's long and illustrious career, he served on numerous boards of directors of corporations. Additionally, he served as an advisor to a number of governmental agencies, including NASA and the Air Force Systems Command. He was a defense advisor to Governor Ronald Reagan during the presidential campaign and a member of the Reagan Presidential Transition Team. He served on the National Research Council's Aeronautics and Space Engineering Board, the Committee on NASA Scientific Technological Program Reviews, and Vice President Quayle's Space Policy Advisory Council. He was chairman of the NASA Advisory Council Task Force on Shuttle Mir Rendezvous and Docking Missions. He was co-chairman of the Stafford Covey Space Shuttle Return to Flight Task Group after the Shuttle Columbia accident. And he co-founded the technical consulting firm of Stafford, Burke, and Hecker, Incorporated in Alexandria, Virginia. General Stafford has received numerous special honors. I will name only a few. He received four NASA Distinguished Service Medals, two NASA Exceptional Service Medals, the Air Force Distinguished Service Medal, the Air Force Distinguished Flying Cross, and the Air Force Outstanding Unit Award. Other awards include the Congressional Space Medal of Honor, 
the Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics Chinute Flight Award, the VFW National Space Award, the NASA Medal for Outstanding Leadership, one of the agency's highest awards. He was inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame and received the Rotary National Award for Space Achievement. And that was a brief biography of Tom Stafford, the commander of Apollo 10. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.